Let's pray together. O oh God, you are the only one whose resources are inexhaustible. You are the only one whose creativity is always self-renewing, whose love does not shrivel, whose mercy does not shrink, whose hope does not die. O Trinity of love, you are constant, strong, and unafraid. We live awash in your grace, and yet we're often unaware of this ocean of divine compassion in which we're swimming. O God, come near. Awaken our senses to this ocean of mercy, of trust, of hope and love surrounding us and filling each heart. You are our hope, our rock. You are the one we count on to save and deliver and to watch over the weak and vulnerable, even we who are weak and vulnerable. We belong to you, O God, and we desire more of your Spirit's wisdom, courage, and loving power. We are trusting in you because of Jesus. Amen. Praise the Lord, you people of God. Give praise to the Lord as long as you live. Do not put your trust in princes, in mere mortals in whom there is no help. When their breath departs, they return to the earth. And on that day, their plans evaporate. But instead, in verse 5, the psalmist continues, Happy are those whose help is the God of Jacob and whose hope is in the Lord their God. And why is that? Why would those who find help in God be happy? I mean, specifically, why is God praiseworthy? We affirm God's goodness. We praise God for this enduring goodness. And we praise God for the order and the genius of creation, for the beauty and practicality and delight of it. We praise God for a love that persists in loyalty and hope throughout generations. But again, what exactly does that mean? I mean, what does that mean on the ground, like specifically in our, what does that mean? Well, okay, so Psalm 146 is telling us a little more specifically what that means. 
Happy are those whose hope is in the Lord their God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. God's ways are beautiful and functional. Who keeps faith forever, who does justice to the oppressed, gives bread to the hungry, sets the prisoners free, opens the eyes of the blind, lifts up those who are bowed down, watches over the strangers, the orphan, and the widow. But the way of the wicked God brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Unlike any other ruler, the Lord will reign forever. Your God for all generations. Praise the Lord. Why is God praiseworthy? What are God's wonderful works? A bountiful, intricate, an interdependent world of creatures and vegetation. And like a loving parent, specific, compassionate care for the needs and pain of vulnerable human beings. This is the wonderful work of our God. This is the reason we give thanks and praise. Verse 9 in particular, as you, I'm sure, have noticed, echoes a refrain that plays like a drumbeat through the whole Old Testament, the divine concern for the alien, the orphan, and the widow, the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Actually, it's more like a heartbeat, the beating, living heart of God and of Israel's life of obedience. It is the heart of God's chesed, this faithful love of Yahweh, or loving fidelity, which gives coherence to the people's lives and shapes the community's sense of accountability and social expectations. Israel's God, our God, the one who is trustworthy and deserving of praise, is the one who keeps watch over the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. It's part of what makes God, God. And being in harmonious relationship with God and with each other, by definition, includes the care and protection of the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. This care and protection is good and just, as God is good and just. And it recognizes also that any of us could and likely will be at some point the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. Doing justice with compassion is part of delighting in God and in the goodness of God's creation. This teaching and this way of living and seeing the world, this way that is just and compassionate, is ancient. It is our calling from our birth as creatures who are made in the image of God. And I mention that because 
Maybe we have felt that things have changed drastically in recent months. Or maybe we have felt changed by recent events. But our calling and our source of delight in God, the compassionate, the most merciful, has not changed. This week, I received this, perhaps some of you got this as well, I received this poster in the mail. I don't know, can you see it? Is it maybe some backlight? It's a photograph taken, it seems, I believe, taken by the Italian Coast Guard. This was sent to me by, as you might be able to see, um, the UN um, High Commission for Refugees. It's an aerial shot of a boat full of people who are seeking asylum and refuge, fleeing from their homes. Now, again, I want to point out that we are moved to compassion by this photograph. And we are moved to open our hands to refugee families and to others who have immigrated here out of dire financial need. We are moved in this way because we are made in the image of the one who sees and takes up the cause of the stranger, the foreigner. Just as God long, long ago took up the cause of the Hebrew people when they were foreigners and resident aliens and enslaved in Egypt. This is the compassion of God that does not change and the calling of God's people that does not change. As people of the way of Jesus who clearly lived and was grounded within this strong heartbeat of his Jewish faith, we can and we must call all people to this way of caring for everyone who gets put in the category of other. And this is not work that we do on our own strength. It's not something that we muster up. It's not even something we can generate just by being a gathered body, but it is by the spirit of this God who does not grow tired as we do, whose hope does not flag as ours does, who will continue and does continue even now to fill us and empower us for this sacred task of compassion and care. And it's also true for us here in this particular community that we have some of our own healing to do. Some of us are weary from other events that have taken place closer to home in our community here. But I am imagining, and just dare with me to imagine, that if we are willing, if we are willing, that God can work 
healing in us and in our relationships in the process of our learning how to love the others, the foreigner, the alien, the orphan, the widow, more deeply. As we open ourselves outward, as we are willing to go deeper into this God of compassion and take risks that perhaps we have never known we might have been willing to take, our healing, even as a body, may come right in the midst of that. And we will have even more reasons to give thanks. As a people who are holding many heavy things these days, many, many troublesome and troubling things, how is it? I mean, the psalmists also were facing these kinds of troubling things. How is it? that we move to such confident praise as the psalmist offers. How do we get to that place? You'll notice that this song, um, 146, comes right at the end of of the Psalter, at the end of the book of the Psalms. And if we take the whole book of Psalms, we will notice that we could say it's, it's a hard-won praise that they're offering. Scholar Walter Brueggemann and some others are suggesting that if we zoom out from the Psalms and if we take a, a view of the whole from beginning to end, we might notice a movement that starts with obedience and a sense of duty and moves to praise and delight utter delight in God. But anybody who knows the Psalms at all will know that it takes some doing to get from point A to point B. And getting to a place of sheer delight in God, getting to a place of true and genuine thanksgiving, uh, there's a lot that goes in between this, this movement from duty and obedience And as you know, in the Psalms, there's a whole lot of rage and lament and shame and doubt and alienation and questioning and shouting at God and weeping. And I trust that God receives it all. Brueggemann calls this a movement from orientation when everything is as it should be that moves through a deep disorientation, struggle and angst into a new orientation. And you might say that the Psalms in their big sweep actually parallel the movement of Job, that that all of the questioning that he goes through, all of the anger that he expresses so honestly um, toward God and toward his friends. When things have not gone as they should, the psalmists are not shy about presenting this before God. When the 
wicked and corrupt, and those who oppress the poor have not faced ruin, but seem to thrive, Israel's poets bring this directly to God. They present this as a problem that God needs to take care of. When their willing obedience and their devotion has not resulted in prosperity and calm, they bring it before the Most High. And God's very love and compassion come into question in these psalms. Have you forgotten your faithful love, O God? Your chesed. Have you given up on being compassionate? And they are, like Job, expecting an answer. Do we? I wonder sometimes if we ask those questions, do we actually expect a response from God? But when the shift comes for the psalmists and for Job, it's a surprise. It's a gift. It's not something that is reasoned through or figured out at last. But it's a result of an encounter. Some deepening experience of God that renews their hope. And Psalm 73, in this one psalm traces the movement that the whole book of Psalms is making, describing the transformation that happens, the transformation that is necessary to move from a hopeless and disoriented questioning, from seriously doubting the reliability of God's love, to a deepened trust in this love and in God as truly faithful and reliable and satisfying. Is it worth it to be faithful, says the psalmist in Psalm 73? Is is it worth it to cultivate a pure heart, to stay focused on the good, to continue seeking God while people who don't care seem to be doing really quite well? The speaker has seen the shalom of the wicked. You'll see in the NRSV it says the prosperity of the wicked. The word is shalom. These wicked people apparently have well-being and peace. And not only is he disturbed by this, but he's envious of the arrogant. Their bodies are without pain. They go to the gym. They have good health care. They don't seem to have trouble. They have plenty to eat. Their eyes are swelling with fatness. They're, they might actually maybe a little too much to eat. And these people are mocking God. They do violence. Violence covers them like a garment. They're covered in this violence. They're threatening oppression. And yet the people praise them and find no fault in them. God, what, uh, this, can you, and he's expecting an answer. They assume that God doesn't see. They seem to be at ease. Their wealth increases. Why have I bothered to do what is right or to have faith at all? 
And then in verse 16, he, noted, he notes that trying to think this through, trying to make sense of it, it says in the NRSV is a wearisome task. The word, there's the word trouble there. The trouble that the wicked don't have is what he has in trying to make any sense of this. And he's not able to figure it out. His very desire to remain faithful is causing him trouble. So what happened? I mean, what happens to turn the speaker in this psalm around? What happens to him? He goes to worship. He goes to the temple and perceives their end. Hmm. Somehow, when he goes into the place of worship, when he enters into God's presence among the gathered community, he comes back to himself. There was some surprise, something that he couldn't figure out or reason through. Something happened in the midst of worship, a gift, an encounter, maybe some reminder of God's ultimate victory, that God's reign will not be thwarted by human beings. And maybe he also remembered who he was in relationship with his gathered community. In verse 15, he says, if I, if I let myself keep going on in this way, I would have been untrue to the circle of your children. Untrue is kind of a nice way of saying it, actually. It, this could be, this is a word that is translated in a bunch of places as dealing treacherously with. Like, this is dangerous to the community. And Dangerous to generations to come. This circle of your children could be the, the gathered community, or it also has some reference maybe to generations. So giving in to cynicism and letting frustration or even envy for the arrogant go on unchecked has an effect on our community has an effect on our children. And he, sto- he catches himself, he stops and is like, I, I needed a reorientation. I needed to come back to my true identity. And to recognize, again, who is this God I'm addressing? In worship, the speaker gains a perspective that was desperately needed and desired. His, his, his gaze is redirected. And he's no longer looking with envy at the wicked and the arrogant and the violent. But he's looking toward this God who upholds those who are bowed down, who keeps watch over the alien, the orphan, and the widow. And he sees that the right thing 
is still the right thing to do. And the legacy of doing justice and loving one's neighbor, and especially loving the foreigner, the orphan, the widow, is something good we pass on to our children, and something specific which encourages and builds up the community. Those who rely on their wealth, who care little for anything but their own comfort, and who mock God, what do they leave behind? A legacy of pain, broken relationships, ecological and moral ruin. If they are remembered, it is as an example of what not to do to live fully and beautifully as a human being. They are not to be envied. My steps had almost slipped. Nevertheless, he says, there are several places in this psalm where there's this little turning of and I, or but I. And at the very, very first word of the psalm, ach, but yes, The thing that you might not have thought was true is really true after all. And he begins with that after having learned it, that the Lord is good. Yes, even though I have seen these things, yes, even so, God is good and is watching over the vulnerable ones and is calling us back to who we are. Despite what he thought as he looked around, He sees again what has been true all along. Even when I don't believe in your goodness, he seems to be saying, even when I don't see it, or when I think you are far off, nevertheless, but I, ach, it's true. The truth is, I am continually with you. You hold my hand. You guide me. And God is the rock of my heart. It is good to be near God. He remembers that God is continually close at hand. And says, I have made the Lord my refuge, a shelter from the stormy and raging voices of arrogance and hatred, a shelter, a shelter even from the self-destruction of my own anger and despair. God is the rock of my heart. God is our inheritance of justice of bread for all who hunger, and a watchful, loving eye on the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. And friends, from such a rock, and from this divine compassion which endures and endures and endures, from this place of shelter and refuge, we may yet learn even to love our enemies. We may go so deeply into divine love 
that we can look a hateful face in the eye and call out to the image of God in that face, saying, you were created to be near God. Happy are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, their God. Some trust in drones and some in Wall Street, but our hope is in the name of the Lord our God, the maker of heaven and earth.